Thank you so much, Dan. Great singing this morning, and that prepares our hearts for some time together in the study of God's Word. Take your Bibles, if you will, and on your way to Luke chapter 11, let's make a quick stop at chapter 5 of Luke's Gospel, and we continue to um, watch with amazement as the Lord heads toward the cross. All throughout Luke's Gospel, there is this focus on the part of the Lord Jesus Christ as he is set to do this great redemptive work. Most people in our culture, if, they, if they've heard of Jesus at all, they assume that he was, of course, a compassionate man who was on the earth and he went from place to place offering a message of kindness and a message of hope. Most people who um, have any exposure to it at all might assume that he offered help to anyone generally and offered forgiveness and salvation to everyone universally. If anyone is inclined to accept that Jesus did exist at all, if they accept that he gave a message of salvation and that it might be true, if they agree that there is coming a time when mankind will have to answer to God for how they lived as one of his creatures, most people then assume that Jesus will simply uh, offer you heaven and forgiveness unconditionally. But somehow Jesus came to earth mostly to model a sacrificial life and a sacrificial love and to offer that love to everyone, particularly um, devoted religious people, and that with a wave of his hand, he will pardon every human being from all of their guilt when the time comes. And if there is a paradise, he'll take them to it and he'll protect them, whatever protection is needed, uh, from any accountability for living for themselves. However, Jesus himself declared that there is one particular attitude, one perspective, one way of thinking that is diametrically opposed to the will of God, and Jesus hates this perspective, and he calls it out so strongly that some who imagine him to be a soft, kind, and compassionate person in the sentimental way will find the words that he speaks toward this kind of attitude harsh. That one attitude is recorded for us by Luke when Jesus says in chapter 5, verse 32, I did not come to call the righteous. I did not come to call the righteous. Verse 31, he had said, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. It's not those who think they're well that need a physician. And that's essentially what he's talking about in verse 32. I didn't come to call those who think they are righteous in and of themselves. It is true, Jesus responds with compassion to those who come humbled and broken. True, indeed. Throughout the Gospels, we see him responding with kindness and compassion to those who confess their unworthiness and their desperate need. It's true. And to those who admit that God's judgment is just and deserved upon every sinner, including themselves, Jesus responds with grace and reaches out his hand of forgiveness. If you're convinced that Jesus Christ is your only hope, you will find a, a, a God who draws near. But here we have Jesus nearing the end of his earthly ministry in our study of Luke's gospel. 
and the tender and mild Jesus began more and more to strongly denounce in public those who refused to see their need, particularly those who were supposed to be the spiritual leaders of Israel. You might be thinking, why such a strong public display when he could have just left them alone in their folly and said, so be it, whatever. Well, it was because of one thing, the principle of influence, the principle of influence. As you head over to Luke 11, just just go to one verse past the 11th chapter, chapter 12, verse 1. Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together, they were stepping on one another. He began saying to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. The principle of influence. The leaders of Israel were, at this point, hardening in their refusal to admit that they were sinners. And as they were hardened, they were dragging the lost sheep of the house of Israel down with them. Leaven. They were leaven. You know, leaven is that, that ingredient you put in bread. It ferments and, and then causes the bread to transform. It causes it to rise. Yeast. Beware the, the fermentation, the, the chemical reaction, the little bit that you add and the large effect that it can produce. Beware of that. The hypocrites, the Pharisees are like leaven. He will tell the churches in Galatia in chapter 5, verse 9, a little leaven works through the whole batch of dough. That's right. You just put a little bit in, and this whole batch of dough begins to ferment, and the chemical reaction happens, and it is caused to be transformed. Starts out small, but becomes massive. It eventually permeates. Hypocrisy is that way. It's really sad what happens to generations if there, if there are religious hypocrites in the family particularly the father, if he's a religious hypocrite. Hypocrisy is the very thing that the Apostle Paul warns against in parenting in Ephesians when he says, don't exasperate your children, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Don't exasperate them. Don't drive them to a, a, a sense of despair in their resentment. If they see your life and you speak these these rules and these standards over the top of them from God's word, and you bring them down in very strict ways, but you yourself do not live by them, you drive your children to exasperation. The Greek verb there means you drive them to a resentment that leads to despair. It's an angry, resenting despair. Hypocrisy. And if, if that happens, those children grow up, and in that despair and resentment, they literally many times just give up, and in their giving up, it manifests itself in all kinds of ways, but notoriously, it is then part of their family life, and then and the grandchildren's family life, and on it goes. It is devastating how, how one particular life of hypocrisy, especially religious Hypocrisy begins to permeate entire families and generations. In Matthew 23, Matthew records what will happen just a week before Jesus goes to the cross and Jesus is on the Temple Mount and he speaks what we will note here in Luke 11, um, spoken at this particular time, certain curses upon the Pharisees, and in Matthew 23, verse 15, he said, you hypocrites, because you travel about on sea and land, and you make one convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. 
end quote. And what is he saying? He's saying, look, you're that leaven that just keeps spreading out, and you pretend to make converts, but it just spreads out into more and more hypocrisy in the generations below you. False religion, spiritual hypocrisy, leading the unsuspecting into ruin, that is what incurred the righteous wrath of the Lamb of God. And when he saw it, when it was blatant, when there should have been softness but there was hardening, he called it out. In the 17th chapter of Luke, verses 1 and 2, he said to his disciples, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks should come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the depths of the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to stumble. The reason Jesus was so forceful when it came to religious hypocrisy was because of the influence it would have the, the young lives it would destroy, the young minds it would steal, the feeding of the flesh that says I'm good enough on my own and the cutting off of one's air hose, the oxygen of Christ that they so desperately need. In Luke 5, Jesus reached out to outcasts and criminal types like Matthew. He didn't reject them. In Luke 7, we see him forgiving this repentant prostitute who was sobbing at his feet. But as we have seen, tensions are reaching a fever pitch with those who have the most spiritual influence over the masses. And so here in Luke 11, everything gets ramped up because spiritual hypocrisy is the deadliest enemy of the gospel. It is the deadliest enemy of the gospel. Why? Because, listen, beloved, it is fallen man declaring that he's not fallen. It is fallen man declaring that on his own he is morally worthy. Yet 1 John 1 verse 8 says, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. And 1 John 1 verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. If you say you are not corrupt and worthy of judgment, you make God a liar because God says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and it proves that his word is not in you. And if you say on a daily basis, I have no sin, I have nothing that I need to confess, you're deceiving yourself and the truth isn't in you. And the worst version, the worst version of spiritual hypocrisy says, I measure up to what is divine on my own. I measure up. I remember a young mom saying, a mystical sort of mom who was an unbeliever saying to me one time about her little one-year-old, she has a divine soul. I said, no. No, she's cute to be sure, but she doesn't have a divine soul. Sure enough, that young person grew up to be an adult and anything but divine. The worst version of spiritual hypocrisy says I'm acceptable to God in and of myself. That my own righteousness makes me worthy of God's notice and God's admiration. God should admire and notice the things that I do in my righteousness. 
And the worst version of spiritual hypocrisy says, any accusation of my guilt or moral shortfall comes only from those who are less righteous and less worthy of me. If that weren't devastating enough, if those sentiments weren't devastating enough, the hypocrite at the worst level sets themselves up as someone for others to follow. And in doing so, they declare that their path leads to self-fulfillment and your best life. And so Jesus goes from tender and mild to severe. Don't imagine that when you read the Gospels that you always see this tender hand reaching out with compassion to the crowds There were moments, as we'll see in a moment, when the Lord himself saw spiritual hypocrisy and the leaven that it was and the danger that it would be and the rippling effect that goes out for generations, and it absolutely gripped the Lord, gripped him. And in being so gripped by the zeal of his Father and a zeal for holiness and a zeal for his grace, which saves, he did not want blindness coming through false religion. And Israel's leaders, its own people, were being led astray by the leaders of the nation. Jesus had to say something. Now, you remember last time he pointed out the blindness of the people of Israel, particularly her leaders. You remember in verse 27, while he was saying some of the things he had been saying to the crowd, a woman raised her voice and said, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. And then Jesus sort of did a gracious recalibration and said, on the contrary, or that may be true, but indeed it's far different than you imagine. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Blessed are those who aren't hypocrites. He's, gonna, he's about to imply Blessed are those who don't just pretend. Blessed are those who don't merely mouth the words. Blessed are those who come to me as their only hope and then seek my power to live these things out. And then he pointed out that the Pharisees demand a sign. Notice verse 29, this generation is a wicked generation. It seeks a sign, yet no sign will be given it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation." What does he mean? Look, just as Jonah went into the fish and was coughed up as a light to the city of Nineveh, Jesus will go into the earth and he will come out the light to the world. That's the only sign that's going to be given. Why? Because at that point, the Pharisees had told him, you do what you do because you're satanic. Look, when you, as a religious leadership of God's people, Turn against Christ at that level. You've seen all that revelation and you say it's satanic. It is over for you. Now what is required is a reproof, a rebuke, and a scathing curse upon you because you are the deadliest enemy of the gospel. And he'd said, verse 34, the eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is clear, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. The inside matches the outside. You can pretend on the outside all you want, as he's about to point out, but it doesn't change the fact that your outside is full of darkness, or your inside, rather, is full of darkness. He will, at one point in chapter 12, say everything that's hidden is going to be brought to light. Everything. And so the hypocrite will be unmasked, always in the presence of God. 
But let's see what happens here after he had just finished that discussion. Verse 37, follow along as I read. Now when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him. And he went in and reclined at the table. And when the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that he'd not first ceremonially washed before the meal. <clears throat> the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, <clears throat> but inside of you you're full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. These are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. And one of the lawyers said to him in reply, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. But he said, Woe to you lawyers as well, for you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear. <coughs> Excuse me while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. And so your witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers, because it was they who killed them, and you build their tombs. For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some they will persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation." From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God, yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you've taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter, and you hindered those who were entering. Now, let's stop right there. This is not a seeker-sensitive message. I mean, Jesus, when you say these things, you insult us too. Okay, I've got, got a message for you as well. Woe to you. Curse are you. Curses upon you. Why? Hypocrisy. Religious hypocrisy. Leaven. Influence. This scene, by the way, follows closely on the heels of what Jesus had just finished saying. You know this because of the, the way that the opening happens in verse 37, when he had spoken. It's, it's better translated when he had finished speaking. It's, it's uh, sort of the, what we call in language studies an aorist infinitive. It basically means when he had finished speaking, this was right on the heels of it. And the scene is set here. He's invited to lunch. We saw this back in Luke 7 when Simon invited him to his house under pretense. You see the same thing here. A Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him. Aristao, the, the, the morning meal, the typical morning meal as distinguished from the, the afternoon meal. This is the late morning meal. We might say brunch or late brunch. And as was Jesus' custom, there's always an opportunity for a conversation. And in this particular case... The polarization of the heart of this Pharisee and then the context where Jesus would respond so strongly. Jesus went in and he reclined 
at the table. Now, this encounter, by the way, is a little bit different from the Luke 7 encounter. Luke 7 encounter, he goes into Simon's house. You remember the woman bursts in and she's shameless and she's a former prostitute and she's coming because she's heard a message of forgiveness and she has been redeemed as she prayed to God and her heart is broken and she wants to worship the one who's given her such freedom. And so she does that and Jesus says nothing. He just lets the display happen and Simon is sitting there and then he uses her as an object lesson to show the pretense of Simon. But it wasn't in that moment moment, though it was a gentle rebuke, it wasn't in that moment where curses were pronounced. Here, the hostility against Jesus from Israel's spiritual leaders has reached a deadly level of stubbornness. It is incomprehensible that this Pharisee would not have been softened by now. Incomprehensible. In verse 14 of the same chapter, Jesus shattered the kingdom of evil and cast out another demon and instantly healed the victim. And when Israel's leaders claimed that Jesus was empowered by Satan, he just crushed their pride by showing the irrational nature of their conclusions about his ministry. You ever been with someone like that where you just keep saying, you got to deal with the resurrection. You got to deal with who Christ is. You got to deal with, you know, what's demonstrated in scripture. And they just shake their heads stubbornly. It's irrational what they say. Oh, the Bible's full of mistakes. Really? You've read the whole Bible. No, but I just know. I mean, this is how it goes. This was this Pharisee. By now, he should have been like Nicodemus, softened. Jesus is obviously divine. What he declares about himself is obviously true. He has proven it. And when the Pharisees demand that Jesus do more to prove he is, who he is, you know, we want another sign. When they do that, Jesus warns them sternly. Yet as clearly as can be stated, he warns them that the inward darkness in their hearts makes all their outward works of righteousness worthless. Perhaps like Nicodemus, maybe this Pharisee has seen the error of his ways and wants to discuss the truth over a meal. Jesus, can we have breakfast together? Maybe he's been humbled. Maybe he sees that all his rituals and external acts of righteousness are empty boasts. This would be the hope. Not so. Verse 38. When the Pharisees saw it, saw what? Well, that Jesus didn't ceremonially wash his hands before the meal. When the Pharisees saw it, he was surprised that Jesus had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. Now, the text does not say that Jesus knew his thoughts, although he does. He is omniscient. The Spirit of God gives him that power while he's depending upon the Spirit in his earthly ministry. There's no question about it. But it doesn't indicate, as it does in other places of the gospel, that that's what happened. It may have very well been that, that the Pharisee here had body language or, or halo data that made it very clear. Hmm, you know, sort of that disgusted look. Huh, you, mm, wow, you didn't wash. Maybe it was right upon the heels of the Pharisee doing his own ceremonial washing and staging it in front of Jesus like he has all of this righteousness and he, he strictly adheres to the ceremonial aspect. And then when he sees Jesus not doing it and going right over to the table and leaning down for breakfast, he might have had an obvious scathing look in his countenance. The ceremonial cleansing of the hands. The word here is actually the word we translate normally, baptize. Uh, when there was a wedding in, in John chapter 2, they had 
all kinds of jars there for the Jewish custom of purification. 20 or 30 gallons each in these jars. And when you came to a wedding, you, you went through this uh, sort of ceremonial cleaning of your hands because you were at a sacred event. In the seventh chapter of Mark's gospel, the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered together around Jesus, uh, and they'd come from Jerusalem, and they saw that his disciples were eating their bread, and they had not ceremonially washed their hands. They were unwashed, and so the Pharisees and all the Jews, because they don't eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders, Mark adds, this isn't, this isn't to make your hands clean. This isn't hand sanitizing to eat the meal. This is a display. It was a tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they cleanse themselves. In other words, they want to show that they are strict adherers to regulations that they themselves set up. They themselves set it up. The practice appears to have been a pharisaical rule. It wasn't in the Old Testament law. And Jesus and his disciples, according to Mark 7, didn't even obey it. Even in the house of a Pharisee, Jesus doesn't obey it here. Jesus never failed to obey the law. That's how we know this was merely the tradition of the elders. And you remember in that account when the disciples didn't wash their hands, they said to Jesus, your disciples do not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat their bread with impure hands. And Jesus said, well, why do your traditions violate God? Why do you uphold traditions over the word of God? The Pharisees came up with all kinds of rules like that. You know, sometimes we, um, we think about the old traditions of Judaism and the commands of Christ, which, by the way, in the New Covenant can be summed up under two commands, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, which sums up the entirety of the law, and you do no harm to anyone. In contrast to that, the Pharisees had developed a system of 613 laws, their own system, laid over the top of Jewish law, the Old Testament, there were 365 negative commands and 248 positive ones. And by the time Christ came, it had produced um, an external adherence without dealing at all with the heart. It was cold. It had produced arrogance, separationism. And the flaws that spread out, the leaven that spread out was so powerful and so influential that by the time Jesus arrives, the generations weren't able to recognize him. All they thought about were the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the, the experts in Mosaic law. That's the term for lawyer, experts in Mosaic law. They saw them as spiritual, righteous, above everyone. They're the paragons of righteousness, and they got there on their own. And why can't we just climb up there? Why are we so, so much uh, failures? this class distinction, and new laws continually were being invented for new situations. So in other words, it was endless, this list of addendums that would come out. Pretty soon you felt you were accountable to the leaders of Israel in some, with regard to these ceremonial additions, but you weren't accountable to God anymore. There was this thing between man and God, this other level of humans. Very, very similar to every false religion. You have your gurus, your priests, your, your advocates, the ones who have to go to God for you, the mediators, the human mediators. 
You have to go to confess to this human mediator. You got to go through this guru. All false religion puts human beings at some level above other human beings and oppresses them and says, oh, you, sorry, you just didn't climb up to my level. It reduces a person's ability to personally discern. You can't see God's law anymore. You can't see Scripture anymore. You can't see Christ anymore. You just see these self-righteous, self-actualized you know, demigods in their own declaration. Confused personal preferences with divine law. I see that sometimes even in the church. You know, people who have particular preferences and they, they have a conscience that's burdened about those and they want to make that the preference of everybody else and so they turn them into laws. Well, it's unspiritual if you do that. Really? Where's that in Scripture? I mean, isn't that really just some tradition that you've developed to keep your narrow conscience comfortable and you want to put that over everyone, everyone else? Romans 14 warns you not to do that. That is moralistic, believing that your little external rules are, are principles themselves with divine authority, lifting them over the top of people. We found that in parenting all the time, or you find it particularly with regard to families and children. Oh, you know, it's ungodly if you have your kids in public school, but homeschooling is superior spiritually. Well, it might be educationally, but the Bible says nothing about either. Nothing. We will all stand before God for our choices and, and a host of other things, right? I mean, all these preference issues, what you wear and, and ultimately, you know, whether you do this medically with your child or don't do this medically with your child or what you eat and what you don't eat and the diet you're on and on and on it goes. We do the same thing. The human heart's prone to put human beings and their ideologies between men and God and act as some sort of authority. Well, it was a heavy burden. And here is a Pharisee who, despite all Jesus' power, all of his messages, all of his warnings, all of the unassailable arguments, he can only nitpick at Jesus about some unrequired ritual. It wasn't required by the law. It was a tradition of the elders. So clearly this Pharisee is now demonstrating such a hardness and such a leaven danger He's not interested in looking to Jesus for clarity on salvation at all. He's not wanting forgiveness of his own sin and guilt at all. He's not convinced that Jesus is his only hope. He's not soft to that. In fact, he actually believes he's spiritually above Jesus. Well, you didn't ceremonial wash. I did. So what's Jesus' approach? Well, I mean, in our evangelical uh, circus... We say, hey, be sensitive. Don't offend. Say very little. And after all, if, if, you, if you say too much, you could, you could you know, push them away. If you must say anything, toss a, a gentle softball over there to make the person feel accepted. Listen, beloved, it's one thing when someone is ignorant. It's one thing when our beloved lost loved ones and relatives and friends are confused. It's one thing when when humanity around us is searching for fulfillment in all the wrong places. I understand that. We need to come to them and build a friendship if we can and, and build an understanding and begin to bring the truth to bear upon their situation. It's one thing to be ignorant, confused, or, or just absolutely deceived by someone else. But it is 
quite another thing when someone has heard the truth over and over, denies that they're a sinner at all, and sets themselves up as a spiritual guru to be followed by others. That's when things get really deadly, really serious. And so while Jesus is invited to lunch, there's some unmasking to do here at the table. And that's what Jesus does, verse 39. But the Lord said to him, Now, you Pharisees. I'd say that's pretty emphatic. You you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and of the platter. This is interesting. He's at a meal, so there's dishes around. I love the illustration. It's a metaphor, though. You, You clean the outside of the cup and of the platter. You've had me in for a meal, and everything looks clean. But inside of you, you're full of robbery and wickedness. Look, you might have nice, clean dishes on the outside, but you've left the scum on the inside. Metaphorically speaking, you clean up the outside of your life, but you've left the scum in your heart. What's he pointing to? You appear morally upright. You are exact about the visual of being clean. While you let the inside, your heart, your mind, your motives, your affections, your emotions, your will, you let all of that be continually full of dishonest gain and evil. The verb here for for you are these things or you do these things, you clean this, you're full of, this verbal force here is, is, it's a continual force. It's durative. You are full of these things continually. So we could just summarize it this way. You wash your hands when you come into the dining room, but you continually allow your inner life to not be cleansed at all. So stay filthy. I love what Jesus said in verse 2 of chapter 12. There's nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, what you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you've whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. God's going to reveal it all. You may wash your hands in some ceremonial tradition. You may go to some religious exercises and appear a certain way to people. But if you do not know and love the Lord Jesus Christ so that your conscience is not cleansed from dead works, inside of you, you're continually allowing your inner life to go filthy, uncleansed. And Jesus is straightforward here. When the Pharisees saw that Jesus hadn't ceremonially washed, the Lord said this to him, you Pharisees clean the outside and the platter, but inside you're full of robbery and wickedness. Love what Thomas Carlyle said, how different is that honey-mouthed, tear-stained soup kitchen, Jesus Christ, of our poor, shovel-hatted modern Christians. How different from that stern-visaged Christ of the Gospels, proclaiming aloud in the marketplace, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, descend from your gigs, ye wretched scoundrels, for the hour is come. End quote. That's right. This Jesus here is serious because this is going to be devastating. False teachers are devastating. I mean, you mention a false teacher from a pulpit and, and people gasp. How can that be when it, is, when it is protection for God's people? See, how do you know they're false teachers? Look, when you listen to what they teach, you listen to the way they open their mouth, you watch the way they live behind the scenes, you will know 
and even the ones that might be more subtle and more difficult to discern. Time and truth go together. Given enough time, God will expose it in his way. Notice, Jesus not only in unmasking this Pharisee says, you appear morally upright, but you you haven't remembered a principle, which is listed for us here in verse 40, that you're going to answer to God for both the outside and the inside. I love this. You foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? I like that. You're without proper reasoning. You're you're foolish. There's no way to soften the force of this. He's sitting at a table with this Pharisee in his house and says to him, you are without proper reasoning. You're not reasoning properly. Morally, you're bankrupt. Morally, you're blind already. You're a blind guide, as Jesus would tell the other Pharisees a week before his death. You reason like a fool. You're irrational. You're childishly ignorant. You're deceiving and you're a deceiver. Why? Well, the principle, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? In other words, you're going to answer to God for both. You clean your hands, but that's just your physical hands, nothing more. But while you're showing off your spiritual greatness by performing the ceremony to appear righteous before God, you're conveniently ignoring the more crucial part of that for which you will answer to God, your heart. You're ignoring it. You're ignoring it. It's exactly what Jesus said in John 9 when Jesus had healed a blind man and the Pharisees found the blind man and they questioned him and interrogated him and they they read him the riot act and then when he found Jesus, Pharisees were there and Jesus says, I came to open the eyes of the blind and Of course, the implication was so obvious to the Pharisees that they were looking at Jesus with disgust and saying, are you saying we're spiritually blind as well? And Jesus said, well, if you admitted your blindness, you'd be forgiven. You'd have no sin, no guilt. But because, here it is, because you say we see already, because in and of yourself you say you know spiritual things, you know God, because you say you don't need me, but you've gotten there on your own. Your sin remains and will always remain because you're conveniently ignoring the reality. The reality is that if you confess your sin, you will be forgiven. But if you say you have no sin, you lie and the truth is not in you. Listen, beloved, if you are here today and, and you are sitting here attached to the ministry and you profess the name of Jesus and, and it is ceremonial for you in some ways to come to church. Sometimes that was even the tradition and you felt bad if you missed it because you grew up in a family where every time the doors are open, you must be there. That's what you were taught. You know, sometimes I get concerned about backgrounds like that. I get very concerned. I get concerned that in parenting, we we convince our children that they're saved and we offer them assurance because we want assurance as a parent. You should not do that. You cannot give your children assurance. You can give them the gospel. You can give them the law of God, which teaches them their need for a savior, a la Galatians 3, but you cannot give them assurance. Sometimes we do that. We want to do that so bad. And then a child grows up 
accepting, like the human heart would, that kind of human assurance. And then as their life unravels out of control, the pressure begins to mount. Their conscience is guilty, but you keep telling them that, that they know God. They have no power over sin, but you keep saying, keep coming to church, keep doing all those things. Suddenly, there's an elevation in their heart of tradition, and, and eventually, you know, you, you can produce one of two things. You can produce someone who rails against it and runs headlong away from it because they never saw their need for Christ, and they can't stand what's on their conscience, or it produces the other thing, a self-deceived individual who goes from there to a Christian high school and to a Christian college and then comes out of it and still goes to church every time the doors are open, but they conveniently ignore the matter of the heart. They've never repented. They've never given their heart to Christ. You don't see any power. You just see them going through the motions. That concerns me. Concerns me when you grow up in a background like that because you could be sitting here in this church saying, you know, yeah, I'm still doing what I've always done. I, I, I must be a believer because I wash my hands, so to speak. I must be a believer because I ceremonially attend. I go to a Bible study. I have dutifully done my quiet times. I've Checked the boxes. But you say, through those things you see. And the Pharisee washed his hands ceremonially and then got disgusted when Jesus didn't. And Jesus has to say, listen, you know, you conveniently clean the outside, but you don't deal with the inside, your heart. In fact, there are some facades that Jesus calls out here, and I'll just introduce them to you, and we'll talk about them next time. There are four facades here that Jesus unmasks. Four facades constructed here, and he just pulls them down. The first is the facade of full obedience or genuine obedience. You notice it in verse 42. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb and yet disregard justice and the love of God. These are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. What a great thing to say. Woe to you, curses upon you because you have a facade of genuine obedience. Deuteronomy 14, said, you shall surely tithe all the produce from what you sow, which comes from the field every year, and you choose to obey those certain externals, but then you neglect weightier provisions from the law, such as love and kindness and protecting the downtrodden. Secondly is the facade of humble leadership. The facade of humble leadership, verse 43, woe to you Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Oh yeah, woe to you, you're like a concealed tomb and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. That's the thing, they don't even know that following you leads to death because you are this concealed tomb. You lead them in paths of death, why? Because you, you say you're humbly leading the nation, but you do it because you love to be seen as spiritual. Thirdly, there's the facade of the standard bearer. The facade of being a standard bearer, verse 45, one of the lawyers said to him in reply, teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. And he said, well, woe to you, cursed upon you, experts in the Mosaic law, for you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear while you yourselves won't even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Yeah, bearing the standard, oh, yes, 
You must obey. Oh, yes. You must, you must uphold the standards. What are you doing getting out of line? The pretense of spiritual leadership that would presume to preach to others and yet be disqualified because in their heart of hearts they're only doing it to take control of people or to separate themselves from people. In the Pharisees' arrogance, they bear a standard, but they're not willing to live by it. They speak of a standard, but they're not willing to live under it. The facade of genuine obedience, the facade of humble leadership, the facade of standard bearer, and finally, the facade of ancestral reverence. Ancestral reverence, reverence, verse 47, woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets. It was your fathers who killed them. Man, you build tombs and you say, oh, those are our prophets. And it was your fathers who killed them. You take no responsibility for the way they were treated by your fathers, but you memorialize them. You don't listen to what the prophets say. You memorialize them with an external marker, but you don't go into the very book they wrote and obey it and repent. You know, that's like saying, that's the church I go to. Yeah, but, but have you ever read your Bible? Oh, that's the place we attend, but have you ever come to the Scriptures with a humble heart ready to obey it? Oh, that's the, that's the place our family's gone for years. I never forget one guy telling me that. You know, yeah, we, we've gone to this church for years. This was a man who, who was a racist, a known racist, and boldly told me so. I'm thinking to myself, you, you got to be kidding me. You traditionally are proud to connect yourself with a history of relatives that attend that big, huge church, and you don't even come to the Scriptures and obey the basic commands of Christ, love your neighbor as yourself, do no harm to anyone. You're equal with other human beings. Everyone is, is God's creation. terrible what we do sometimes. Another man said to me one time, he was a youth pastor, I said, so, so, you know, when did you become a Christian? Oh, I've always been a Christian. No. I mean, we could talk about that, but no. In other words, my parents grew up in this church, and my grandparents were at this church, and, and I've been grandfathered in. I, I'm, I've always been a Christian. No, 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 no. No, because you've never come to Christ. You've never given your heart to Christ by faith. It's all ancestral reverence. They did the same thing. What was the net result? Verse 52, Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves do not enter, and you hinder those who are entering. There is the real rub for Jesus. There it is right there. These are spiritual leaders who are hypocrites, and their influence is going to ripple out to others. They, they stand in the way of the gospel for people. Listen, beloved. This is a warning to, to make sure we understand that the gospel is about the death of one's own trust in one's own righteousness. If you trust in your righteousness, if you look back on your conversion and you see that it was an emotional experience while you get to keep a little bit of yourself 
to trust in a little bit of yourself for making yourself acceptable to God. If you grew up in a false religion and just have turned evangelical Protestantism into the same issue, if you've come out of Catholicism or Mormonism or Judaism and you maintain those elements while you come here and act like you really believe in the true gospel, you need to go back and examine that. Ritualism, ceremonialism, externalism, moralism, these are all deadly enemies of the gospel. They have no place because the only way to come to Christ is what this Pharisee missed. He must come and throw off all of that and say, I put my faith in Christ alone. In Christ alone. It's a warning to us. And even if you are here today and you're in Christ, we can still reflect this kind of hypocrisy, can't we? We can. We can, we can believe that the outward things that we do are enough. We never deal with the inside. You never deal with the heart. We can become convenient like that. We can even lead people astray in our hypocrisy. I know there were times where I needed to deal with the hypocrisy of my own life as a dad and and in your Christian life, you're going to find that there are places where you're a hypocrite. You say one thing and you do another. You boldly profess one thing and you don't live it. As a Christian, these are reminders to us that this is the deadly enemy of the gospel, and we've been empowered to see that change in Christ. We don't have to live like hypocrites because deep down we've confessed our sin, and he has been faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Next time, we're going to look at all those facades. We're going to see if we can identify, even as Christians, with any of those facades. You know, do you, do, you have, do you proclaim genuine obedience yet conveniently leave out the more difficult things to deal with? Is that what you do in your Christian life? Perhaps. Are you a standard bearer all oh, championing the truth? Is that what you do? But you yourself won't lift a finger to live it? Do you love all of the accolades of appearing spiritual but you don't really deal with the heart? Do you bank on your friends and family and heritage to make you commendable, but you don't deal with the heart. We'll see. That's for next time. Father, thank you for this morning and seeing how the Lord deals so severely with this very, very crucial aspect. Lord, there are false religions all around us, and you call us out of such things, and you tell us to put our hope and trust in you, and even in ministry and even in preaching and even in what we say and our influence and in giving the gospel, we don't want to be those who, who might use some clever technique or, or might not deal with the heart issue and just love the externals so that people are deceived and they begin to trust in men rather than you. Keep us from those tendencies and help us to help others avoid the deadliest enemy of the gospel self-righteousness in man-made religion. And may it be lessons for us, even as we see what you said to this hardened Pharisee. Lord, forgive us for any moralism, any pretense, any self-righteousness. Keep growing us in you by your Spirit, we pray in Christ's name.